0: This is spielberg's most personal film and it's intriguing to watch and pay homage to the directors who made up his group of friends in the early 1970s This odie henderson of boston globe love the name odie my, my youngest guy's getting big into garfield these days garfield, i always think of odie the dog but odie henderson noted film critic chris cody popping up here that's our featured review of one of the movies we're talking about this week here on cinephile the Fableman's steven spielberg's new film plus she said new york times expose about the Me Too movement and the breaking down of Harvey Weinstein. Navalny, terrific documentary about the biggest opponent of Vladimir Putin in Russia. And we've got our old movies as well, Bicycle Thieves, one of the all-time classics of neorealism, and Boogie Nights, which I know Cody has seen, but I want him to watch it again because I had not seen it in probably hmm, 15, 20 years, so I watched it again. You got through three quarters of Boogie Nights again.
1: Yeah, I had seen it before. Man, you were shot out of a cannon after a week off.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you know, so- what are we doing? Are you, do- are you reviewing nine things today? Yeah, we're doing... We're doing three new movies, three old movies. You're right, we had the week off. Someone was like, "What would you do while you're off?" Like, I watched six movies and I read this entire book, Quentin Tarantino's Cinema Speculation, nearly 400-page book of anecdotes. So that'll be our wild card. We obviously could not get Tarantino. Remember I was like, "You're yeah, going to get Tarantino." I'm like, we're not going to get Tarantino.
1: I heard the cl- I heard the cliff I read the cliff notes of that book by listening to his interview with Howard Stern.
0: Oh, really? How was it?
1: Yeah, he had ha- Howard had him on like last week and he's it's really good. Howard Anytime he sits down, because these guys, I don't know how Howard got this way. Like, when people do an interview with Howard Stern, they give him, like, two hours. Wow. And it's like, he just has it. This is, like, his thing now. It's like, if you're going to do my show, I need a lot of time. And they just do everything. It's just. I think they know the kind of reach he has. That's the best. Yeah. yeah, The best research for any interview is watching them talk to Howard Stern.
0: Yeah. Well, I remember when Mad Dog Russo did Howard Stern, he was like, when you go on there, like, Everything's fair game. Like you can't just go. I'm not going to get into that or duck something else. Like if you, he has a huge platform, so he's giving you this platform. And you know where he's going. He wants, he wants to talk money. He wants to like, say anything yeah. salacious. And so he's like, when I go on there, I, I know I'm going to get Mike the Mad Dog questions. Like he's going to start talking about Francis. Like yeah. give me the fights you guys had. You can't duck Howard. So if Tarantino's on there, like anything negative, you have to know it's going to be a fair game. He'll probably prop you up and give you love. But like I remember Jonah Hill went on. I just want to keep talking money. Like because Jonah Hill kind of throw a line like, you know, I got paid scale. And he's like, Wait, what would you mean? What would you get paid? Like it's like yeah, like, it was. Yeah, like, well, but give me the number. He's like, I think it was like twenty five thousand dollars. He's like, that's it? He's like, what did DiCaprio get? He's like, oh, like fifteen million. He's like, are you kidding? And that's all Harrison yeah. want to talk about. And Joel Hill's like, no, but I get to work with Scorsese. Like, I don't care what the money is. Like, I'll make money with uh, you know super bad too. Like, it's fine.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Mad Dog revealed his ESPN salary. And then, said afterwards, yes. and then he said afterwards, I just had to give him. So I knew I had to come yeah. with something. Yes. So when he asked me, I was like, you know what? I'll give him this. This yeah. will be the thing.
0: And then it's hilarious because <laughs> then he was on Jimmy Traina's podcast, which Dan Labatar recently did. We talked about. And Traina was so happy because <laughs> he was like, hey, you mentioned the money with Howard Stern. He's like, yeah. He goes, what was ESPN PR's reaction? He's like, um, <clears throat> he's like, oh, I probably I should great. get into this. What the hell is not you brought up? He's like, I got a two word text message from my agent. And it simply said, not helpful. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the agent saying that. I guess that, that's the, the relationship with the ISC Right. So ESPN PR gets
0: pissy, so they went to him. Like, hey, just tell Mad Dog. like, Just don't go out. <laughs> Not outstair. helpful. Not that helpful. That is just like, a classic line <laughs>
1: from an agent of, like, just a rogue talent.
0: 100 <laughs> percent Uh big news is this. I get to see my buddy Cody. I haven't seen him. You know, the last time I saw Chris was, I don't know if you remember this, it was when I was went for D It was in Miami, and I was just doing yeah. some streeters. And, and you happened to see me. You were you were like Oh, like it was a, like a crowded night at the at the Clevelander. <laughs> I don't
1: know what I was even still doing there. Was it during Super Bowl?
0: And you spy me. I'm wearing like a big bright pink it was golf. Super Bowl stuff, right? Super Bowl stuff at a yellow okay. DZone mic, and you saw me like from I want to say like the 20th story. Maybe it was the fifth story. You ran downstairs, you saw see me I'm like hey Cody like dude yeah. I just signed the Cleveland I just want to come say hi we spoke for like two minutes but that is actually the last time I saw you. So what was that two years ago I don't know how that happened, but I think
1: Anyways. more than two years ago at this yeah. point. You're
0: right. That'd it had to be pre code. It's probably twenty nineteen uh, yeah. January of nineteen. So the good oh. news is me and Chris will be in red, and the good news is for all of you, you can all meet us because Moss Miami is indeed coming up. We're now just less than two weeks away. I don't know if tickets are still on sale. I'm sure they're gonna be sold out. Forty bucks, something like that, but it's a steal.
1: They are still they're still available. There's not many left. I believe two thousand was the starting <sighs> amount, and I think we're down to like a couple hundred wow. or so left. So like okay. if you if you want to go, you better get your ticket.
0: This is the time to get it done. I'm a little bit. And
1: worried they're going to about- be more expensive if you're like if you're playing it like uh, let let me play last minute on this and go day of. I think tickets are going to be more expensive. At it so if you want you know okay
0: get it no let's to just get it done. I want to be able to say it was a sold out event. I want to say I was the MC for a sold out event. We'll say it's sold out regardless. Okay, we're gonna say it sold out regardless. But get your tickets now. I'm a little bit concerned. I don't have my plane ticket yet or hotel room <laughs> confirmation. I, I I hit up Kristen because she was like yeah let me know and this is a few weeks ago so I'm a little bit worried. Maybe staying with with Chris and Greg <laughs> Cody. Maybe I don't know. We'll find out. But I, I I tell you what I'm gonna be there no matter what. Moss Miami it's coming at you. It's gonna be awesome. All I love right. the idea I, I of you want... sleeping.
1: I love the idea of you sleeping on my couch it's just the visual
0: of that is delightful if it's just more more material for the pod that's all we really care about the other day uh, i do want chris's version of what tarantino was talking about in his book later on we'll do that for the wild card, though let's get to the main movies right three movies out of the gate and one of the most anticipated films of the year which is the fabelman's and this is really spielberg's baby here's the plot Growing up in post-World War II era Arizona, young Sammy Fableman aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. So Spielberg directs... So this, is, this is his life, right? This is his like, life. And he's Fableman. This is the key, is that you're watching it the entire time thinking, this is actually happening to Steven Spielberg, and this all happened to Steven Spielberg, and how did this inform the films of Steven Spielberg? If this was just actually some guy named Sammy Fableman, I don't know how interesting the story would be. Like, I think it's it's a good movie. It would have some interest. It would feel a little bit familiar. But because it's Spielberg, and you're just so invested of knowing all of Spielberg's films, it has that much more added resonance. And I think it's it's really fascinating what he was able to do. He's been joking about it. I think he was on 60 Minutes or somewhere I saw a blurb. He said, yeah, I paid $40 million to go to therapy. Like, they gave me a $40 <laughs> million dollar budget, and I went and made this movie. And, and there was... You know, great stories behind the scenes of how he cast all these people like Michelle Williams who's an excellent actress and I hope gets Oscar nominated she's fabulous in the way playing his mom Mitzi Fableman he said like you know she's just a dead ringer for my mom and once we got the haircut going and everything I mean we're we're literally reliving scenes from my childhood and Paul Dano who's often by the way his name is pronounced Paul Dano people always screwed up I read this article he said it's Dano like Drano so people will think I'm screwing it up but I'm saying it right Paul Dano <laughs> Plays his dad, and he said Spielberg's dad had this, like, you know, inherent sense of decency to him. So, imagine, like, he goes, I got Michelle Williams, who looks just like my mom. I got Paul Dana, who looks like my dad. I got a guy who I'm casting who looks like a young Steven Spielberg. I don't know how much Seth Rogen looks like Benny. Benny ends up being his dad's best friend. But there were moments on set, like Spielberg was just overcome in tears. Like he said, it was hard to call cut because they were reliving really emotional moments from my childhood. And even other actors at times, like Judd Hirsch at one point saw him kind of like in a quiet moment. I had to give like Spielberg like a pat on the back. Like, it's okay, man, we'll get through this. So It's really an adventurous and a very brave and very personal film from him. And one of the criticisms of Spielberg earlier in his career was that he'd make these great action movies, but nothing truly from his heart. Now, in some ways, I suppose that's fair, but in a lot of ways, it was an unfair criticism because if you look at any of his movies, they always deal with a lot of these themes, which is how his parents divorce completely changed his life. Now, maybe they're not dealing with that in Jaws, which is obviously still a great film, but if you look at Close Encounters, if you look at War of the Worlds, if you look at, you know, all these movies he's made over the years, there's always an issue of family and divorce and a surrogate family and all the rest of it because that had such a profound impact on Spielberg's life. So I thought the film was was really involving and, and interesting from that perspective. I mentioned the casting, both those actors were terrific. You know, Michelle Williams is the mom. She was the one that really kind of nurtured that gift in Spielberg. You see him with the home video camera and he's always wanting to film stuff and, and she's really one who's nurturing and supportive, and at the same time, she's flaky, and she's a little bit off. And you're like, okay, she starts seeing a therapist at this time. And, and this is an era, obviously, well before you could you know, publicly, I think, see a therapist without people kind of judging you or be on medication. So the the, the mom I would describe as a little bit eccentric, but certainly loving. And then the father, as I mentioned, he's super smart. He's working for IBM, loves his computers. He's got the plastic glasses. You know, seems like a loving father. But at the same time, a little bit emotionally distant. And he, he kind of seems like, and you see a few times, which is accurate to the film and in real life, hey, Stephen, when are you going to stop playing around with these cameras? I mean, like this whole movie director thing, like whatever, like, why don't you do what I do, you know, work for IBM, work for these computers, you're a smart guy. So it's interesting how his mother was the one who was supportive of his vocation, but wasn't necessarily a great mother, and I won't explain why, because you'll see the movie, but his father was the one who had that quiet decency about him, wasn't supportive of his career until later on, but still, in many ways, Spielberg says he got that gift from his father because he was so intellectual. I'm
1: I'm interested in the decision to not call this Spielberg wouldn't this movie be more popular and get more interest I mean I guess Spielberg doesn't need help getting people interested in his movies but I just feel like if if I knew this was like Spielberg's this is Spiel- the life of Spielberg I would be more intrigued to just be like oh let me go watch this whereas the Fablemans I have to like read and be like oh this is actually Steven Spielberg now I'm more interested in it I don't know I just feel like
0: it, the narcissistic move might have been a better seller here. Well, definitely, I thought that with the first name. Like, when they keep calling him Samuel, like, well, they should just call the kid Steven. Like, it, it yeah. is Steven Spielberg. Steven Fable, and I'm like, okay, fine. He wants to change the last name. He doesn't want every Spielberg knowing this. I'm like, I guess I get to understand it to a point. But I hear you. If you just said the Spielberg... There's no question about what it is then. The Spielbergs? Oh, it's Steven Spielberg's life story made as a movie? Oh, kind of cool. And and,
1: and, he- I have, and and my second thought... Seth Rogen in a serious role. This guy can actually act. Yes. I think I think he gets kind of he gets kind of put in this box as like the the pothead comedy guy. Yeah, but he's been in some roles. Like I think
0: he's respected as an actor. I agree, and especially if you get Spielberg casting him. And, and early on, he is kind of like the fun loving uncle. You know, he's Uncle Benny, even though he's not his uncle. By, uh, by birth. So he I mean, is kind of funny? So kind of funny, kind of goofy. But then there is some dramatic points to it that I'm like, okay. If Seth Rogen is able to hit these yeah. moments, there's a couple scenes you're like, all right, if this guy can hit these moments, then that shows he's actually a good actor. And I agree with I, you. I thought he actually had some talent there.
1: I got to look it up, but I'm pretty sure... Maybe it was Oprah. Seth Rogen once another Howard Stern reference because I'm a big fan of that show. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Seth Rogen told a story once on Howard Stern of being at like a big time celebrity party and being in the backyard and just like lighting up a joint with someone and like Steven Spielberg walking out <laughs> and, it, and him meeting Steven Spielberg yeah. in a spot where and I don't believe Steven like, and I think Steven was like awkward, like it was like awkward with the weed being around. Like he felt right. really uncomfortable that like I'm meeting Steven Spielberg right now and I have a joint in my hand. Like it, I gotta confirm this, but I'm pretty sure he told that story. I was
0: gonna say he probably told on Sturm rather than with Oprah, and
1: I, it would have been even strange. If no, said, it might have been Oprah. I'm trying. It was either okay. Spielberg or Oprah that walked out. And he had like an awkward meeting. I got to look it up. But yes, I'll get back to you. It would have
0: been amazing (laughs) if Spielberg asked him for like a hit. Then I'm like, oh my God, that's Spielberg smoking weed with Seth Rogen. Spielberg
1: looks like a stoner, doesn't he? He looks like a guy Mm. that gets right to do his movies. Like, oh, I got to get in the right mind space. I mean, I
0: think he's. I think he probably does some yoga, but I don't think he smokes weed. Because all the stories you have ever read about him, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, obviously the great, great book of the seventies, Spielberg was just always a nerd. Like he just loved, loved oh, the okay. computer animation, all that kind of stuff. Wasn't, wasn't really getting after the ladies. But there is some really interesting stuff, by the way. Because again, you go, oh my god, that's what Spielberg was like. There is this part in the movie which is really interesting with um, him as an adolescent high school, and, and again, some of this stuff I knew he faced a lot of anti-Semitism in Phoenix, you know, being the only Jew there and how tough that was. Um, but also when this one girl kind of. Finds an interest in him. She's like, oh, you're Jewish? She's like, yeah. And she's like this really devout Christian. But she's turned on by the fact he's Jewish. So he ends up going back to her place, and like, you know, there's a huge figure of Christ there, and like, these other pictures of Jesus, and she's like, let's pray together. Like, it's almost like she wants to pray the Jew out of him, and he's just kind of like, uh, okay. She's like, he's like, let's let's pray to Jesus, and let's see if we can, and like, she starts kissing him, like she suddenly breathed breathe God's power into him. Just a bizarre scene. And again, Spielberg says so much of this, he co-wrote the script with Tony Kushner. Tony Kushner, the legendary playwright of Angels in America, they collaborated previously on West Side Story, but Spielberg said he, he made sure, like, he showed his sisters the script, like, am I remembering this right? Is that what you said? is that what I said? Like He took such careful attention to detail, and his parents lived with him for a long, long time. I mean, it's 2022. Steven Spielberg's got to be late 60s, early 70s, and his parents just passed away like a year or two ago. I don't know if they ended up seeing a finished cut of the film, but he, they definitely knew he was working on it. I'm sure he showed them the script. Maybe they saw some scenes from it, so they're aware of the fact that he was making this film about them. Pretty lucky he had his film and his parents for that long in life. You're pumping your fist because you were right.
1: I nailed it. I want to play a clip of this right here. Sirius XM, The Howard Stern Show. Seth Rogan telling a great Steven Spielberg story I was at a party yeah and it was whose party was it a big party like I think it was that Jeffrey Katzenberg night before party that he would have so it's like a
0: big party with a lot of famous people at it Mm -hmm. and I Start I was outside and there was someone else I knew and we started smoking weed and I was smoking
1: a joint and like it was this awkward moment where like Steven Spielberg came up to me like
0: as I had this joint in my hand and I could just tell like
1: he, he, he did not like it. Like it was a very judgmental moment. And then you're confronted with this thing where it's like, Do I fucking try to hide it? Do I just be smoking it? Do I uh, act it's like, it's like do like I want your dad to caught to? you. exactly and yeah. then I was just like I think I just have to take ownership
2: over this and
1: keep smoking this joint in front of steven spielberg um that is and i did yeah and Yes, and I, I, he always. I've run into him a few times, and he always seems a
2: little disappointed in me. Every so the time. whole time you're talking to him, yeah. you said that's it. I got to go. I with just got to fucking I, smoke I, this I shit. Me. I got to down this <laughs> thing while <laughs> th- face to face with Steven Spielberg.
0: Oh man, that's a great clip. I mean, we're on fire tonight, and if I, we got a week off, but Cody just just finding clips out <laughs> of nowhere. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Dumb those- Unfortunately, I will tell you, Steven Spielberg does not smoke weed at least in this film, but it still is really yeah. well done. Um, one of the best scenes in the movie too is you know after he's kind of given the go ahead or the blessing to be a filmmaker you know, he ends up meeting John Ford who gives him this great advice. And uh, again, I want people to actually watch the film to get the whole advice. But let's just say when you're shooting something, you shouldn't have the horizon in the middle of the frame. And I'll leave it at that. You'll, you'll see what happens in the movie because it was actually really cool advice there by John Ford. But again, Spielberg's divorce, it's obviously very painful to him. He deals with it in a very exploratory manner. I thought it was a very good movie. It won the Audience Award at the Toronto International Film Festival. So I have no doubt it'll be nominated for Best Picture and Spielberg will get lots of rave reviews. Didn't think it was great though. I don't think it was one of the best films. Of the year. I thought it was a very good movie, though. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. And here's a couple of other blurbs as well. This is from Barry Hurt's Hometown Paper. That's right, Globe and Mail. The Fablemans did not touch my heart, and it did not touch my mind. It only poked me in the eye and kicked me in the shins. Ouch. Ooh. Barry wasn't feeling it. <laughs> and Moira McDonald of the Seattle Times. The Fablemans is a movie about being seen and about learning to see. I'll give it three Maple Leafs. Once again, that is The Fablemans, our featured review. A couple more here. She said... New York Times reporters Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor break one of the most important stories in a generation. A story that helped ignite a movement and shattered decades of silence on the subject of sexual assault in Hollywood. That's right. Jodie Cantor, Megan Toohey, played by Carrie Mulligan. She plays Megan Toohey. And um, you got Zoe Kazan as Jodie Cantor. So this is... It's interesting when you watch a film, which you know is about an explosive moment in time, but that time wasn't that long ago. It's like seeing a movie now, if you watched about the COVID crisis, you're like, wait, but that was only two years ago. And this was what happened. It's crazy to think about Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein saga. It only happened six years ago, but this is the film about it. Now, This is very much following in the vein of All the President's Men or Spotlight, two great films about investigative journalism. That really is what this movie's about. For me, it was about investigative journalism, why it's so important to be able to find the truth, how dangerous it can be, and how risky it can be. And I also can't imagine anything more terrifying than an investigative reporter coming to my door. Like, imagine if... uh, Cody, investigative reporter. Excuse me, Chris. I'd like to speak to you privately. Uh, who are you with? I'm with the New York Times. I'd like to ask you a few questions about your relationship with Dan Levitard. You'd be like, oh my god, like already? I'm like, I'm in trouble. Like, I, I don't. I'd be like, I gotta, I gotta talk to my lawyer first. I don't even have a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> i, I got to talk to my dad. Your father's also implicated. We've already spoken to Greg. Like, holy, oh my God. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't have a lawyer. If it's tax evasion, then I, I would just about-
1: start acting like I was on mute on a Zoom, even though I'm in front of them. I would have been like, just miming words. Like, I'm on, I, then they're like, we're standing in front of you. We're not on Zoom. Why are you doing this? It'd be weird.
0: Just, I remember one time I got a, an email from work and it said, the, the subject just said CRT. And I'm like, oh my God. And it's and it, and it just said, Adnan, please give us a call when you can. And then the person was like, legal counsel. And I called my agent, and I go, um, any idea what this is, like CRT? And he goes, my agent used to be a lawyer, Matt Olson. He goes, uh, critical race theory. I go, exactly. I Googled CRT. I saw critical race theory. He goes, huh. I, I don't know why they would talk to you about critical race theory, but this was around the George Floyd stuff. So I, got, I don't know what's happening. Major League Baseball, they want to talk about. He goes, all right, here's what you do. Call her back. But if anything, like you feel like it's dicey, just be like, oh, I'm, I'm breaking up and hang up and call me <laughs> and then I'll call the lawyer. I'm like, okay. So to your point, that, that is a classic ploy to just go, um, uh, hang on one second. My phone's just cracking up. I've got a train. But- and what these people That's the, do. Modern,
1: the modern version of that is just being muted on Perhaps. Zoom in person.
0: But <laughs> as the movie shows, these New York Times reporters, what they do is they actually go to the person's place. I mean, at one point, Patricia Clarkson, indie icon that she is, she plays the editor, and they're like, we've found about three women that have probably been victimized by Weinstein. One lives in Australia, one lives in Wales, one lives in Los Angeles. Basically inferring like, hey, we're not going to get a hold of these people. And the editor just looks at them and was like, can you get on a plane? And they're like, Oh, like you're you're willing to fund this. I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Get your ass out there. Like, we got to do the story. And that's how you have to do it. And, and one of the, the, the people who she ends up seeing is the husband of one of the women that was victimized by Weinstein. Think how awkward this is. Hi, is uh whatever the name was. Julie Julian? Uh no. Can I can I ask who you are? Oh, I'm Megan Tweet, the New York Times, I'm an investigative reporter. Oh, okay. Uh, is this something that can be taken care of another time? Or uh, when will Julie but be? But was back? he
1: aware of it? Was the no. guy was the husband aware
0: of it? Husband That's has no the idea. Thing. Husband's doing no, it he's just like, What? He was like, When's Julie gonna be back? He's like, I'm not sure. She's out of town for a couple of days. He's like, Okay. And then she's like, Well, can I ask you a few questions? He's like, Oh, I have no idea. And she starts saying, you know, Do you, you know, your wife used to work for Harvey Weinstein? He's like, uh um, yeah, but they they never spoke. And she's like, "What?" He's like, "He she was in Hong Kong. He was he was over here. Like they never talked." And then she starts to, like, reveal some details that she knows. She's like, well, apparently that's I'm
1: a, That's kind of, like, fucked up a little bit. Like, I feel yeah. like, let, let the wife break this news to the husband. You're just going to reveal, right. like, some of the darkest secrets of her past? Like, that's just that. And that I understand their heart's in the right place, but it just. Yeah. To, to, you break the news to the
0: husband seemed a little weird. But exactly what you're saying. The next scene, she's calling Carrie Mulligan's character. She's like, oh, my God, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where the person was. So I started telling the husband a little bit. But he had no idea. Like he was blind oh, so basic. she Wait, felt what? bad. So, so she like did the, feel bad after. She's like, oh man, it's like I didn't I know what to do. Like I've got to get a hold of the girl. And he's here. I've flown freaking 3,000 miles to get here. Right. And he's kind of like, wait, what is this about? Like what? And so it, it ends up being a very difficult situation because you've got to, If again, if you just call someone on the phone, hey, I'm with the New York Times. I'm here to talk to your relationship with Harvey Weinstein. That's a quick click. Like it's over. Yeah, it, It's very hard to find somebody who goes public. And you have to remember now, this was six years ago. Rose McGowan came out as an actress. Harvey Weinstein raped me. Okay, boom. She's putting her face and name out there. Then... um, Gwyneth Paltrow talked about an incident with Harvey Weinstein. But again, they show in the movie going to talk to Gwyneth Paltrow. But Gwyneth Paltrow doesn't show up. They're just like, okay, we're going to go talk to her. And then, this is the craziest part of the movie, but we're going to go talk to Ashley Judd. And it actually is Ashley Judd. So Ashley Judd is playing herself in a movie about her talking about the times that she was sexually assaulted. So it gives the movie a real documentary feel to it. She's like, wow, this actually happened six years ago and that is Ashley Judd up on my silver screen here talking about what Weinstein did and she has to put her name to the face. If you go back, I have to go back now and read the New York Times article that just blew the whole thing up, saying Harvey Weinstein had raped and sexually assaulted women. Ashley Judd's name is the first one. Like she's To put it into baseball parlance, she's leading off. Like She was the lead-off hitter. I'm like, hey, here's what happened. Boom, boom, boom. I'll put my name on it. And by the way, this ruined my career. This absolutely changed things for me, but I'd the the truth needs to get out. And uh, it's just, I think, really fearless and really brave, particularly of Ashley Judd to be in the movie and, of course, all of the women to speak out. But as I said, it's really a film about investigative journalism, the importance of journalism, the importance of finding the truth. I thought both performances are really good by Kerry Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, particularly Carry Mulligan. I think she'll get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I always My own, one quibble of the film is I love Andre Brower. He's one of my favorite actors. He was so brilliant in Homicide, Life on the Street, as Frank Pendleton. I wish he had more to do in the movie. It's not a great role for him. He's, he's basically one of the... Um, the editors there with the New York Times one of their bosses playing Dean Baquette uh, but I wish Bonjour Browers utilized more because he's such a great poor actor poor Mike
1: Houston this guy that played Weinstein oh yeah you know, that's what's like, not-
0: No, you're, you're getting to that part so the whole question is this you make a movie about what happened to Harvey Weinstein so what about Weinstein but you never actually see his face it's only from the back and it's mainly his voice that you hear Oh, okay. So, so this guy just is like in it as a shadow. I mean, you Sarah, see a shadow, and there's a few scenes where you hear his voice a few times. He's talking to your like, hey, you guys better not run that story. Like, classic Harvey, just there to bully people. Like, that's what he was. He's like, you guys t- what, did, what did Gwyneth Paltrow say? What did Ashley say? Rose McGowan's lying. I've got lawyers. I'll, I'll come after you guys. You better not write that. And then one of the best scenes of the film is Peter Friedman, who is awesome. He's in succession. He plays Frank in succession. By the way, two weeks ago, I went to go interviewed Gary Bettman, the NHL commissioner at the Paley Center for Media. Uh, it was a last-minute request from work. I'm like, yeah, no problem, I'll go. But I was like, I need a car service. I'm not, I'm not fighting Manhattan traffic. I'm helping you guys. Yeah, no problem, great. As I'm driving, I look at the window and I go, oh my God! And I didn't know his name is actually Peter Friedman. I just know it's Frank from Succession. So I was that guy. I lowered my window. I'm like, hey, Succession, yeah! And he, and he gave me one of these, like a... Yeah, like that's me. I'm like, yeah, but he, but he looked. And I know people always say this, like when they meet Chris Cody or anybody famous, they go, "He looked just like he did." But I'm like, no, yeah, he, he looked exactly like I expect. Like I you right away, like that is Peter Friedman. He's wearing a suit. I love how
1: adorable you are when you meet, like, so, like you're yeah. you're kind of a celebrity, but you still like these movie guys. They get you, man. I just so a movie excited. Guy, you're like,
0: ah, oh, the guy from the thing. He's like the number <laughs> ten listed actor in Succession. I'm like, ah, it's Peter yes. Friedman. I'm like, yeah. Anyways, great that. scene where Kerry Mulligan's talking. And so again. At this point, Weinstein knows he's in trouble. Now, he's the lawyer, one of the many lawyers for Weinstein. He's like, I'll meet with you guys. And it's so well-constructed, this scene in which he's not defending Harvey, but he's also trying to make sure they don't run the story. So at one point, they say to him, like, how many women have there been? He's like, listen, Harvey's married. He's got kids. He doesn't want this to go public. Okay, but he, he definitely has made some mistakes. Like, he, he has absolutely had some relationships with the women. He's working on that. They go, how is he working on that? He's like, he's going to therapy. Like, he's, he's trying to get this done. But he's never raped or sexually assaulted a woman. They're like, really? He's like, so actually, just making this up. He's like, again, I, I, I'm just going to say, uh, from my hearing from Harvey is, he never raped or sexually assaulted. Perhaps there was a situation where he misread it like thought the girl was interested and he went a little yeah. bit further than he should have because that absolutely happened and, and we've had some payouts about that. Later on, there's another great scene. Carrie Mulligan's like, you said there were some payouts. He's like, yeah. He's like, how many? He's like, oh, listen, I'm not going to do your job for you. You're like, I'll, I'm only to help out and play ball, but I can't do it. And she's like, well, they're 40? He's like, <laughs> not 40. And there's this pause where you're like, wait, is it more than 40? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like gee, like, how many payouts has there been? And later on, he gets to say, he's like, on background, you know, you can't quote me. 8 to 12. It's like 8 to 12. But 8 to 12 is significant enough to go, okay, I've got to find these 8 to 12. We have 8 to 12 buyouts. I just need two or three people to speak on the record. and We can run this story. Like, every person that you talk to just says, hey, you didn't hear from me. Hey, on background, off the record. Yeah. I heard Harvey once did this to this person. I heard YC once did this. And, like, Ashley Judd's line, she goes, when she was trying to escape from Weinstein, she goes, Harvey, if you win me an Oscar for a film made by Miramax, I'll blow you. But until then, I'm out of here. Like, like he was, And he was constantly using his power. She this said is, that? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what, a, what a line to say. The only time you actually get the real Weinstein, I think it's the real Weinstein recordings, which is just so creepy, is <clears throat> it's really well shot. There's scenes of them going down the hotel How corridor. How could they use his real voice? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was this guy, Houston. because. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that like the only time he actually used actual audio tape was him, and you hear him trying to convince this woman to stay, and it's so creepy because like this guy Ugh. just can't take a hint. He's, she's like, "I don't feel comfortable. Like I, I just want to go." And he's like, "I'm just asking to come in room for five minutes. It's okay. It's it's Ugh. fine." And he, she's like, "I just don't want to be here. Like can I just go now?" And he's like, "I can do things for you. I can help you. Please don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass me here. I'm very famous. I'm very famous in this world. Do not embarrass me, or you're going to be in trouble." She's like, I'm, "I'm not trying to embarrass you. I just don't want to be here." And he's like, "I just need five minutes with you. Five Minutes, i'm gonna have a conversation oh. with you i can do a lot of things for you i i, I oh. am a very important person like this guy is just so disturbing and so oh. disgusting the way he just uses power and his clout to just take advantage of women i mean there's just, there's nothing else you can say right it's it's literally preying upon women doing so but th- th- another story it's so horrifying at this point one of the, the actresses is willing to go on the record she's talking to to carrie mulligan's character and she says you know yeah um, harvey and i just kept trying to coax me. I'm like, all right, fine, fine. He's like, let's just run a bath together, whatever. He's like, he starts masturbating. And he's like, and I, goes, I got so uncomfortable. I didn't know what I was thinking. I just started crying. And then he got angry at me because he was still masturbating, but it was, it was uh, you know, upsetting his flow, so to speak. Yeah, she goes, and then Ugh. what happened? She goes, then I just, I just told him. He goes, oh, He got angry at me. He went outside and he closed the door, but I could still hear him masturbating. I'm like, oh, like, this guy is just repulsive. <sighs> So it's not exactly a fun film around the holidays, but it is a really important one. It's directed by Maria Schrader. It is written by Rebecca Lenkiewicz, who wrote the screenplay, and uh, also by Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey. Those were, of course, the reporters who wrote that story and broke that story for The New York Times. I'm giving that one three Maple Leafs. Again, that will be getting some Oscar buzz. Uh, We'll fly through a few more of these, and we'll do a little Tarantino book review. Navalny, how about the Stones on this guy? I've always wanted to go to Russia. Maybe it's a hockey thing, Canada-Russia Summit Series. Maybe it's just geography. Like, I love looking at, like, the Kremlin. I love looking at, like, just the buildings of Russia, the Russian architecture. I've never music.
1: wanted to go to Russia. You, you've
0: had no issue ever going to Russia.
1: I, I've, I've, I want to go to a lot of places. Russia's never one that I was like, I got to get there.
0: St. Petersburg. If you Google St. Petersburg, those Greek Orthodox buildings, they look so cool to me. Like okay. When the Olympics was there, I'm like, oh, my God, I just want to go to Russia to see the Greek Orthodox, St. Petersburg buildings. Moscow, I heard, isn't as great. Bolshoi Ballet. Obviously, you go see some hockey. But over the Where's years... Where's the
1: coolest place you've been? Period. Just, well, the, like, just to look, to look, like don't take away like what sporting event was there, just Aesthetically pleasing, where it's like the most gorgeous place you've been.
0: Well, Italy took my breath away because I'd always wanted to go yeah. to Italy. That was number one for me. My wife and I went on our honeymoon. Five days in Rome, only a day and a half in Venice. Should have gone to Venice for longer. But just yeah. the fact that it's all built on water is just insane. It's Florence just is great too. Yeah, Italy's Florence great. Is Italy's I- Italy, great. Italy, tough to beat. Although I wanted to say <laughs> Saudi Arabia only because John Skipper and I have both been there, which is a sense I never thought I would say. John Skipper and I have both been to Saudi Arabia. Don't sleep on Lake Tahoe. I know, I still got to get to Lake Tahoe. In
1: America, I'm telling you, in America, I don't think you can do better than like just the, that aesthetic view. Oh, the mountains and the water. Oh, great. Especially
0: when you said in the summer, because like, I might go in the winter. Like, I, know, I think the summer is better. Winter would still be cool. I think it's always cool, but I think in the summer,
1: just it's just gorgeous, man. Gorgeous.
0: Lake Tahoe has going to happen at some point. Anyways, uh, back to my thought about it. I just always love Russia. I've always wanted to go to Russia. I'm fascinated by, you know, Russian literature, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, War and Peace. So a movie like doc, uh, Navalny, a documentary like this I was so excited about. And I didn't know a whole lot about Russian politics, but now I feel like I almost know too much. I feel like, like Putin might come after me. Because Navalny, <laughs> here's the story, follows the man who survived an assassination attempt by poisoning with a lethal nerve agent in August of 2020. During his months-long recovery, he makes shocking discoveries about the attempt on his life and decides to return home. It's directed by Daniel Roher, who I did see and was very passionate when he won, I believe, the Best Director Prize at the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards, which I was at a couple weeks ago in New York. But Navalny has got a pair of stones on him because everyone knows about Putin. Putin's in charge, yes, right? Whether you like him, don't like him, uh, you know. Obviously, those who dislike him say he's a fascist dictator. Obviously, those that love him say, "Hey, he's good for the Russian people. He's brought back their sense of love and uh, you know, pride, nationalism." and they got the bombing in Ukraine. It's obviously a very complicated situation. But that's why Navalny is so fascinating. This is the guy who is the leader of the opposition party. So, you know, imagine in America, you know, who was the guy who was against Trump? Who was the one who was against Obama? Like, this is the guy who was against Putin. And the documentary starts out, and, and you know, the documentarian, Daniel, is asking, like, what would you want people to know But if you die? And he goes, oh, Daniel, Daniel, please, don't do that. You're going to make this film if I die, then show people. No, no, no. We're not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> right away. I just love this guy. He's like that. No, no, I know what you're trying to do. Like, when I get killed by Putin, this will be the last documentary. But like, we're not doing that. Like, I'm not dying, and I'm here, and I'm the man. And this is a guy who really wisely uses social media. I did not know, I mean, I probably should have realized, but social media used to such an extent in Russia. This guy's all about Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. TikTok, like you name it. That, that is how he so was. So he's moved.
1: almost like, because Putin can sh- like make people disappear, but this guy has such a presence that yes. if this guy disappeared, everyone would be like, Putin, what the fuck?
0: Correct. <laughs> so he has been Putin's biggest nemesis, thorn in his side, but he's got a real strong base, at least according to the film, especially among young people. But then we get to the time where he was poisoned by Putin. That's right. You heard that right. He was on an airplane, and because he's Putin's biggest critic, he's poisoned by him. And you go, well, hang on a second. How do you know he was poisoned by Putin? Unless Putin like left a note? So, like, hey, by the way, this is right. me. But the movie very smartly and very cleverly points out how he's able to figure this out. I just thought that was fascinating on so many levels. If I was poisoned. I wouldn't think, all right, who did this? How can I find this out? But Navalny uses this intricate web and team around him to kind of figure out, and of course it's intricate. It's not like Putin's got like his right-hand man doing it. This is like Russian mob. He's, they've got so many different people that can take care of this. But eventually they come to the situation. It looks like a mob movie. They've got like literally the names of all the suspects. He thinks the people that poison, how they're connected to Putin, how they're connected to the party. So he ends up, <laughs> it's the best scene of the movie. He calls like four of the different henchmen. And he's gonna pretend like he's somebody else, but he doesn't go that tactic first. First, he just calls. He's like, and it's obviously in Russian, but you see the English subtitles. He's like, the guy's like, hello, hello, No." And he's like, it's Navalny. Why did you poison me? And the guy's like, what? He's like, it's Navalny. Why did you poison me? Why did you try to kill me? Hang up. The guy's like, he hung up. like, next guy calls. He's like, Yep, He's like, how you doing? He's like, good. He's like, how you doing? It's good. He's like, what's this about? He's like, do you know who I am? He's like, I think so. He's like, it's Navalny. He's like, okay. He's like, why did you try to kill me? God hangs up So the other His his buddy is like Hey I think Maybe you should try A different tactic here Like they're not gonna You know Pretend you're somebody else So he he calls A third guy This guy again He gives him a little bit more, but eventually He's like I know who you are He recognizes his voice I'm like Why wouldn't you think You're gonna disguise Your voice a little bit Like put on an accent Or something Like do something So the fourth guy calls He's like This guy's a chemist He's not like A true tough guy Russian mob He's a chemist. And that's amazing how he's able to get this guy to admit the truth without only saying so much. So he starts by saying, hey, it's, you know, Alexi. It doesn't say he's Navalny. It's Alexi. He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm with the, with the group. It's, it's like if I called you and I just started using vague terms. Like, I'm, I'm with the group. I'm, I'm with the, you know, friend of the show. I'm like, uh-huh. Like, yeah. We, I talked to Carl last right. week. Correct. You just got to say And, then, and like. you get that person to say it. So I just send my friend of the show. You go, uh, who did you speak to? I'm like, uh-oh. I can't remember. You, Carl? I'm like, yeah, it was Carl. It was Carl. Okay, cool, cool. It was. Was it about the? Uh, oh, I was about the uh, the thing with the. Is it Moss? Yeah, yeah Moss. Moss Miami. Oh, about Moss. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. So that's the tactic he's using on this guy. He's like, hey, I want to talk to you about what happened. He's like, yeah. He's like, and he doesn't seem to have all these. Emails. He was. What, what happened with the, with the guy with that with that thing? And he's like, with yeah. the poison. He's like, I thought yeah, you know, the guy you tried to poison and kill. He's like, I thought that was going to work out. He's like, Shh, I'm surprised too. He's like. And right away, like the woman next to him is kind of like, we got him. Like he's going to start, the recording He's like, so. So what happened? He's like, we gave as much as we were supposed to give. He's like, but that guy's strong, man. He's tough as a horse. He's like, he's <laughs> like, they gave him some stuff, and he like his body kind of like fought it off. He goes, and then. The authorities got to him quickly, and they gave him like this, you know, anti. It's almost like a snake. If a snake poisoned you, like, it's like the anti-venom. He was like, they got the anti-venom in him quickly. Like there was, he's able to recover. He's like, but that guy's strong as a bull, man. Like I, did, I, like we gave him a lot. Like we, <laughs> we thought this would get the job done, but that guy's a freaking superhero. He's like, yeah, it's pretty tough. He's like, and hey, this is a doc. This is all real stuff. All real stuff. Like it's incredible that they're shooting this in Russia. And I'm like, oh my God, how is this film? even seeing the light of day. Like Putin's gonna just kill anybody. Like I, again, yeah. I feel like I'm in trouble just by seeing the movie, just by yeah. praising the <laughs> film. I You're talking. It right now yeah they're <laughs> gonna track me down here i'm like oh my god so eventually he ends up saying more and the guy at one point starts getting a little suspicious and that always happens too like you've already reeled him in they're like wait i'm going too far with this and he's kind of like and he's like well listen I, I don't think we should be talking about this like because uh, like, this is secure like who did who what, what's your exact federation He's like i told you who i'm with i'm with, I'm with the federation like why do you think i'm calling it like come on <laughs> and let's this go. is the guy right this, this is the and not disguising his voice because the other guys all knew his voice right away Again, imagine if Trump called you. Like, I'm pretty sure I could figure out it's your voice, but for some reason, hey, hello, Chris.
1: I, I'm a big fan of your work with Levitard.
0: <laughs> I, I think this show work, is big, big huge. work, bigly. <laughs> the show was huge. Okay, it's it's
1: the yeah, greatest
0: okay, show I've ever seen in it's my life. Less.
1: It's just it's good. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> Limited Trump coming soon to Muspelheim. I mean. So that scene in particular is riveting. And then afterwards, he's like, right, "What do we do now?" Like, once, once he hangs up, he's like, "What do we do now?" Let's put it on TikTok. He's like, all right. But they had to wait for the right moment. And they just blasted on social media. He's got like, you know, whatever, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, the whole thing. And it's amazing. Yeah. So you say, where is this going to end up? This guy basically was poisoned by Putin. He knows this. He's talking in the documentary about his life, et cetera. You've got his daughter, by the way, who speaks perfect English. She's going to school, in, like, in California. Couldn't even tell if she's Russian. Like, she's like, oh, my God, like, my dad's crazy. Like, I love him, but he's nuts. Like, he takes so many risks, what he's doing, but he feels he's fighting for democracy, et cetera. Here's where... Not that the documentary lost me, but just Navalny's thought process lost me. So you, Chris Cody, have been poisoned by the guy who runs the country. You have left the country, obviously. He, he's, he's gone. like he's, He got out, which is when he posts the video saying, look, Putin poisoned me. Here's this guy admitting it on tape. And then you go back to Russia? Like, no, dude, you're you're done. He went back. He went back. I'm like, no, it's over now. Like, he tried to kill you. You win because you survived. Now just go live a life. Your wife's going. Your daughter's going to school in L.A. Like, just go to the U.S. Like, Americans will love you. Like, hey, this guy's anti-Putin. Whatever. He's like, no, I want to go back. It's my homeland. I want to fight for what's right. Democracy. I'm like, bro, you're walking into a suicide trap. On the plane, there's like a hundred. I'm not exactly A hundred reporters talking. He's like, all right, can you guys sit down so we can just get on the plane? But they all want to ask him questions. Like, why are you doing this? He's like, it's my home. I want to go home. And I've got work to do here. Like I'm the leader of the opposition party.
1: With I assume Putin I assume Putin like denies all this. Like there's clips yes. of him being like, No, we did not do these.
0: Never refers to him by Navalny though. He just always says, Yeah, that guy or like who you know, that he, he won't say him by name, but he's just like, Yeah, yeah. This guy's ridiculous. Well, I'm tired of that guy. That guy's nonsense. Yeah. Just, you just, of course I sense.
1: wouldn't try to kill him. That's right. a, that's nonsense. If and I that, wanted to kill him, I could kill him.
0: <laughs> that was my <laughs> thought. Like, I can't believe this guy survived. Like, if Putin wants to kill him, I'm pretty sure he can kill you. But he's like, But there's yeah. no interest in the just gunning me down. He goes, they know if they gunned me down. Then they're like, obviously, he was killed by Putin. He goes, but if it's a poisoning, that's yeah. well, drugs, or you ate something bad to eat. Anyways, right. within seconds of landing in Russia, he's trying to get through. The cops show up, like, hey, how you doing? Can you see your passport? Yep. Are you going to come with us? I'm like, oh, obviously, dude. Like, what do you think? You're going to survive? He kisses his wife goodbye. He's currently in prison, which I know because of the Critics' Choice Association two weeks ago when the director won Best He director. released the doc in, from prison? The director was like, hey, because he was, you know, the, the, the mood was like kind of upbeat. Remember Fire of Love? I talked about the volcanologist documentary, Good Night Oppie about the robot. When this guy won the award two weeks ago, it was so stone serious. He's like, this award is for Navalny. He currently sits in a maximum security prison in Russia. But this documentary is a testament to him. It's a testament to documentary, to, to fighting against fascism. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, I got I to see this movie. I'm,
1: I'm terrified just having talked about this. I feel like Putin is going to be out in, next to my car. Like, <laughs> come with me. Sir.
0: That's why I'm not going to give it a Maple Leaf rating. I, you I, don't I, release this podcast. Right. These podcasts never <laughs> sees air. Because if we just talk about it, it's one thing. But if I actually say three Maple Leafs, I'm like, oh, my God. So you're supporting this film. I'm like, so where I'll is just, it on? Is it like Netflix? Like, HBO Max. Oh, man. You'll like it. You'll check it out. It's called Navalny. I think it'll definitely get Oof. nominated for an Academy Award. I'm intrigued Best by, by all this stuff. The Spielberg movie. Oh.
1: She said sounds important. This is like... I have to say, just by titles, none of these things really grabbed me, but these, yeah. all three of these things sound really interesting.
0: When you, soon, when you saw when you go, this is not going to be a great episode. But now I've booked it. I was like, oh. <laughs> and then, once I saw the, the synopsis, I was like, okay, I okay. get it. But I yeah. Get, okay, well, this is interesting. All right, let's get to Boogie Nights. Now we're doing our old movies here, and we'll do our wild card at the end. No guests this week, because obviously Tarantino's not going to come into the file. Should we honest. take
1: a break first? let I feel take like we back. Back. we've been going fast. We're I need, to, I need to breathe. We're
0: coming back with Dirk Diggler. So here's the thing about Boogie Nights. It's been 25 years since that film came out, 25th anniversary. And what stands up to me is this. If you told me there'd be a movie about the adult film industry, I'm like, there's no way this is gonna be a hit. Like it's just too dirty, it's too filthy, it's too raunchy. And yet, what's amazing to me is this Boogie Nights is not only people love sex, man. I suppose, but I'm like, the fact it's not only really funny, really popular but gained great critical approval. This is a film that was nominated for Academy Awards. Burt Reynolds' comeback performance. He was nominated as a Best Supporting Actor of the Film. Paul Thomas Anderson, obviously one of the great filmmakers of our era. We all know that now, but 25 years ago, he'd made one film, Heart 8, which he was upset with the way that film was edited, original title, Sydney. He ends up making Boogie Nights with New Line. He somehow convinces them, hey, listen, give me like $15 million. I'm going to make this three-hour film with the porn industry, and it's going to be awesome because I've seen a ton of porn, and I know it better than anybody. And all these actors end up being massive, massive, stars. Burt Reynolds obviously was a a Who's who? Right. That's the the first thing that jumps out at you
1: is like the first like five minutes Uh, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley.
0: Yeah, go back to 1997. People were not household names like Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley and Don Cheadle and Julianne Moore later on Academy Award and my man Philip Seymour Hoffman. Luis Guzman, one of like the best character actors. I love that guy. Like just an outstanding cast and ensemble with Boogie Nights and it's a film which he's paying really homage to Goodfellas. I mean, you watch the movie and you go, okay, clearly... Paul Thomas Anderson watched and loved Goodfellas, and this is like a porn version industry film about Goodfellas. Rise and fall, drugs, crime, violence. I mean, there's almost certain shots. You go, okay, he's just, he's just paying homage to Scorsese. The shot of Henry Hill in all his suits. You see Dirk Diggler, the suits, the compound, the drugs, even the way he shoots him, the scenes of him is the coke. But it is such a film that is so vibrant and so alive. That's my big thing to me. When i watched watching that film, I, I just feel there's such an energy to that film that I think is really infectious, even though it's about a dirty topic which is a bunch of porn it should have been called
1: grooming porn stars <laughs> i mean it's i'm with you i mean it's it's one of, it's, it's it's riv it's like one of those things it's just like sex sells. like it's yeah. just you can't look away it's just yeah. one of those movies and the i'm with you the energy john c Riley just brings an energy to that film i he's, love him in that he's role. funny
0: in everything he says like the first time when he's mixing the drink he's like how much do you bench he's like well you first he's like, "No, i asked you first <laughs> like,
1: yeah <laughs> I just love, like, there's, like, so many good little lines, like, uh, yes. Burt Reynolds, goodnight, honey tits. Like, just, like, just like, what a weird way to say goodnight to somebody. William H. Macy's wife just getting oh. pounded right in oh. front of him. Don't stop, you big stud, she says, like, while he's standing in the room. Like, jeez.
0: She's on the, top facing the other way. And that leads to one of the great outtakes and flubs, which is in the movie, when William H. Macy is being confronted by Ricky Jay. Ricky Jay, David Mamet regular. He's obviously a great magician in his own right. Go look up Ricky Jay magic sometime. But he was a a real favorite of David Mamet. Ricky Jay is confronting William H. Macy about the lighting and trying to get the film stock ready for tomorrow. And William H. Macy is like, can't you see Like my my wife's getting fucked over here? And the line (laughs) he's supposed to say is, that guy's cocks in my wife's ass. Double check it right now, if you look it up. I believe he says, my wife's ass is in her cock, or my wife's cock is in her ass. So they do it. P.T. Anderson's like, hey, you got to do that again. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. He screws it up again. He's like, oh, damn it, I'm sorry. He's like, oh, let's go do it again. He gets it right, and then P.T. Anderson, when he was editing the movie, goes, no, no, no. This is much better when he screws it up, because it's like this guy is so angry, he ends up flubbing the lie. So it's actually one of those things that, you know, it's a per- perfect of aspect of filmmaking that sometimes there's a certain element of serendipity. When you screw something up like that, it ends up being a good thing. And William H. basically, said when he saw it, he was like, I can't believe he kept that in, but of course he kept it in. It's really, really smart. Great job by Robert Ellsworth, the cinematographer. Robert Ellsworth at the time was married. And then he goes, I had to tell my wife, hey, um, I'm making this movie with the adult film industry, so me and Paul are going to go watch porn. He said he sat down with Paul Thomas Anderson. For literally two weeks straight, they're just watching porn every night because he's wants to look at the different <laughs> film stocks. How did it look in 1972? How did a videotape look in 1978, 1987? So imagine you're a cinematographer, it's your job, you have a wife at home, you have a child, perhaps. He's like, I gotta go watch a bunch of porn with Paul Thomas Anderson. Just have to look at the film stock and how grainy it is. And and I mean, think of the again, the humor of the movie. When Julian Moore like first sees Mark Wahlberg when they're shooting the porn, he goes, this is a massive cock. Like, like they've got to shoot these lines a certain way. That that first scene, by the way, when he first shows his memory. And you see the, the, the slow zoom into each of the guys, like, oh my god, like R- Ricky J kind of gives it a look, but we're like, wow, wow. And Bill Simmons, by the way, they did a great boogie nights on the rewatch. It was four hours long, they went. Simmons said for years he would joke with his friends, the scene where the colonel goes, uh, he tells you they have a big cock. He's like, May I see it? And then he just kind of gives that one look with the sunglasses, gives a quick smile, and goes, Thank you, Eddie. He's like, <laughs> he's like for, for years I would just use, thank
1: you, Eddie. <laughs> now, did Bert, I, I'm forgetting the very beginning of this movie, like, did Bert Reynolds, like, just look at him, look at Mark Wahlberg's face and knew he had a huge penis? Or was it like, did he
0: hear around? No, no, he I he could it, just tell. Yeah, he's at a restaurant, he just sees him and he goes, you know what, that guy's a good looking kid, young kid, let me just go talk to him. He's like, he's got, a, he looks like a movie star appeal. And then when, when he goes back to confront him, he's like, hey, it's, uh, so what do you want? Bert Reynolds is like, what do you mean? He's like, it's, you know, it's it's five to if you just want me to jerk off, or, or five just to see it. Ten if you want me to jerk off. He's like, oh, at that point, it's like, oh, this kid, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, wait, yeah. Wait, what you do that? He's like, yeah. Like, uh, is that what you're here for? He's like, no, I, I don't. I not what I'm here for. But I, I'd love to talk to you further about some stuff. But he's like, oh, see, he happened to said, but people. I think about this though. People were just going. Do you think to he's ever Walmart. wrong?
1: Do you think Burt Reynolds ever goes up to somebody and is like, hey, I got a feeling about you, and then the guy's just like, no.
0: <laughs> I'm actually a, a not church-going me. Puritan. I have no interest in that also. Not me, man. Yeah, I'm not your guy. guy. <laughs> But he goes, it's five to jerk, five just to see it. A guy pays five bucks just to look at his dick, or ten bucks to jerk off. Like, oh, Burt Reynolds, is like, you're actually doing that? He's like, yeah, yeah, all the time. You want me to do it now? He's like, no, I'm okay right now. You can save your ten dollars. Thanks. <laughs> um, Philip Seymour Hoppin, Again, I think of great scenes. Right, let me go no, one more with the Colonel. When the Colonel ends up being imprisoned, and he starts talking to Burt Reynolds, he's like, oh man, I just, I can't believe this happened. He's like, yeah, he's like, I just, because you know they're just so young, they're so pretty. He's like, listen, Colonel, it's okay. you're with the girl. She was underage. You didn't know. You found out it's fine. He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, we're gonna be fine. We'll get you out of here. The the look—it's so well played by both those actors, my like PT Anderson and the cutting. The way he just kind of pauses—it's like when someone yeah. knows they're guilty. And you're like Cody, it's fine. Man, I, I already talked to Dan. We're fine. Like listen, dude, it's, you're a little drunk. It's okay. You're like yeah, pause, and they're like, wait, there's something else that's all come. He's like, we're good, right? He's like, yeah, there's one other thing. Like oh, no. <laughs> and, what, and the way he says, he goes, they found some stuff. He's like, why is it that they found Because they're just so young. <laughs> it's just so innocent. Like, oh, my. The look of her else is like, oh, my God. Like, it's one thing you're with a chick who you thought was 18 and she's 15. But now you're telling me they found kitty porn all over your house. Like, bro, I can't talk to you. And then the audio cuts out. Like, it's a prison call. And he, told, he says to me, he says, I just, you're, you're my friend, right? And then it cuts out. And he goes, <laughs> you just see a mouth of the words, are you my friend? Are you my friend? <laughs> Dude, you're a child molester. You're a pedophile. Are you my yeah. friend? I'm like, no, I'm not your friend. Don't ever talk to me again. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> I love I love Philip Baker Hall, of course, P.T. Anderson regularly. He was so great at Heartache. When he comes in, this Floyd Gondoli. Because he's telling him, you don't need stars. You don't need Julianne Moore, Dirk yeah. Diggler. Like, like, just, it's all videotape. And he's like, listen. And, and, and Burt Reynolds starts getting offended. He's like, no, I'm a filmmaker. Like, I make motion pictures. He's like, listen, I'm trying to upset you. He's like, I, I, I don't know how he says it. He's like, yeah, I, like yeah. I like lollipop in my mouth or lollipop up my ass. like, whatever. It's fine. I'm just telling you. This stuff things are going to change and the rise and fall of the adult film industry. Boogie Nights is just such a pleasurable movie to watch. And I have to also mention the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. The fact he plays Scotty, like the the vanity-free performance, wearing the mesh shirt, not able to cover his belly, like yeah. you, you get the thought like, this guy isn't actually employed by them he's just like he's like a hanger on right he's just yeah. friend, a friend of the crew he just shows up holds a boom mic when he starts, when he starts kissing Mark Wahlberg he's like oh Scotty like, what are you doing he's like oh I'm sorry I'm sorry man I'm just do you like my car Like, do you think it's good he's like "Yeah, Scotty leave me alone and then yeah. he sits in the car i oh, an idiot I'm an idiot so well played it, it's a rare movie that like, you can watch it and feel bad for characters and still be laughing at it because it's so funny yes Right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're laughing with Philip Sharp, but you're also kind of laughing at him. Don Cheeto scene in the Donut Shop, violent. And that builds to the real crescendo. The scene that I always think about is when they actually go to probably pull off the drug bust, and Alfred Molina is there in his underwear in a bathrobe and he's got this crazy <laughs> mixtape and there's this Asian guy with firecrackers throwing it. Like, like what the hell is happening like for a for a really strange movie that's when it just goes off the deep end but I Takes love the it. cake yeah <laughs> I'm like I just love that scene because at one point Alfred is like smoking crack because you guys want to play baseball I had to look it up I thought like it was like a drug term like do you want like I don't know these things like speedball baseball he's like, oh, no he actually means if you guys want to play baseball no, <laughs> he's, so, like, I don't know. he's so high as a kite and I then, thought that uh, was over I thought that was a drug Thing
1: too. I right. didn't know. I just didn't
0: get it. <laughs> but the way Jesse's girl starts playing, the music's cranking up. You see Wahlberg's oh. face getting edgy. Thomas Jane, we want the money. You're going to save. You get the money. We're not leaving. The-. And John C. like, dude, dude, get out of here. All of a sudden, he turns into Scarface. Alpha, that, yeah. comes out the drive like, sucker. You guys want to play? But it's just, it's just a crazy <laughs> scene. And it really leads, what ends up being a really beautiful finale, because you get that great montage of each of the characters. And it really shows what Boogie Nights is about, which is that, yes, they all be working in the adult film industry, but it's a surrogate family. Like Julianne Moore is like the, their mother. At one point, with Heather Graham, she's like, are you my mom? Like, I'm just, they do a line together. She's like, I want you to say that you're my mom and that you love me, okay? Are you my mom? She's like, yes, I'm your mom. She's like, okay. I'm like, yeah, like that, that's what this is about. Burt Reynolds is I like the like- father.
1: Morris, Poor but- Heather Graham. Poor Heather Graham. I feel like she gets that role in every, like, I feel yeah. like I'm thinking back to, like, Hangover. Yeah, but that, but that was the thing. She takes her toe and she goes,
0: I, I never take my skates off. And she goes, you better not comment me. Like, those are the two things she cares weird, about. That
1: was weird, the skate thing. I was like, what's with the skates? Is, is, she, is he just trying to give these characters a layer?
0: It's I like, I don't so. take my skates off. How about the Seymour Roller girl just loses it in, in the limousine when the guy's like he's, like, he's like, I know you, like, from high school. He's like, I remember you. And then they start fooling around a little bit, but he's getting too aggressive. He's like, "Hey, easy!" Bert Reynolds is direct. He's like, "Easy, slow down, Tiger. This is this is roller girl. You make love to her. Like, calm down." Then he gets mad, and she's like, "What?" He's like, "He's like." You're just gonna do that to me. He's like, you just give me blue balls. Like you just, you get me all horny. Ends up throwing him out of the. It just, it just turns really violent. She starts like, hitting him with the roller skates. Yeah. He's just beating the crap out of him. And that's where Wahlberg too. He gets picked up by the guy. Ends up being these, uh these anti-gay thugs. That scene he also don't see coming. Cause he's like, yeah. He's like, the guy's just staring at him. He's like, just like almost salivating. He's, Wahlberg's trying to jerk off. He's like, oh, I can't, I can't. All of a sudden, boom, some boomers get beaten up by these guys. He's like, yeah, take this, you whatever. I'm like, yeah. there's There's a lot of dark scenes in that movie, but it, at the end of the day, it's very pleasurable, and I love that last montage. Obviously, amazing. Soundtrack. The, the score is really good too. Uh, he says on the director commentary, Paul Thomas says, People always know the music around it, you know, Living Thing and uh, Jesse's Girl, obviously, and that last great, great use of uh, Beach Boys. God only knows that last montage of all of them. But also, the score itself, because it's like the circus music. He's like, I want to get like sad circus music, and that was the score of the film. It's really, really well done. And one last homage to Scorsese, that last scene where Mark Wahlberg is talking himself on the camera is, of course, a lift of De Niro in Raging Bull, which is the last scene Raging Bull. De Niro is talking himself on the camera before he's out there to do his stand-up act and entertainment act. There, Wahlberg is kind of like getting centered, and he's like, all right, you're the best. You're the man. But then it gives you the famous shot, which is he literally just pulls out his dick, and you're like, wait, this entire movie was building to that shot. There it is. He's hung, and he's off to go do his job. That I wonder what the is.
1: testing was like for the penis. Like, oh. how many penises did they look at? or were, were some too big, some too small? Well, some until they saw the, the one right. That was one. in the
0: film wasn't girthy enough. Right. And like after all that build up, you're like, really? Like, hmm. like, like it's big. Like, I thought it'd be like this. Like, the look the at you, well, hey yeah,
1: Adnan. <laughs> I'm lowering my glasses. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's the final thought there on Boogie Nights. I that would a, actually
1: be a funny take of like that movie, just being like, yeah, I saw the movie, not that big. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, wow, look at you. Okay, we get it. We okay, get right.
0: it. Wow. Yeah, Nine and a half <laughs> inches over here. Okay, got it. All right, fair enough. Right, something's doing well. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie. Um, it's tough to, to go any further after that, but we're going to do a couple more here real quick. Bicycle Thieves. In post-war Italy, a working-class man's bicycle is stolen, endangering his efforts to find work. son set up to find it. Classic film. I watched it on HBO Max. Hadn't seen it in like 20 years. Vittorio De Sica. Beautiful film about Italian neorealism. I just think what's amazing about this is, this is literally a movie about a guy who is so poverty-stricken in the first 10 minutes he gets a job. Alright, yes. I'm back in. 1948 Italy. But, the key is, do you have a bike? Because your job involves having a bike. He's a courier. Yeah, no problem. I got my bike at the shop. I'll get it fixed. He goes and gets a ship. Then, while waiting with his son, bike gets stolen. Like, what? And the rest of the film it is about a father and son trying to find that bike. And the fact this is actually a movie, they're able to string out 90 minutes of drama out of this and make a really beautiful, heartwarming, and ultimately tragic story is one of the great feats of world cinema. If you've never Is this seen a it, pursuit of happiness vibe to it? No, it's, it's much more superior than pursuit of happiness. But yes, in terms okay. of you know, down on his luck father and trying to yeah, overcome okay. homelessness and that kind of thing. But it's, it's just, it's a really special film if you haven't seen it before, because it makes you realize how precious these things are. Like, literally, this is the guy's mode of transportation. Without a bicycle, he can't do his job. Without a job, he can't do anything. And ends up dealing with all this friction and tension with him and his son. And as I mentioned, the very, very famous ending of Bicycle Thieves. They're both walking towards the camera in close-up. Bicycle Thieves, classic of world cinema, Vittorio De Sica. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Four Maple Leafs. Um, All right, as Chris and I mentioned, our wild card, which we'll do briefly here, Quentin Tarantino's new book, Cinema Speculation. here's the big thing I want to do, because my brother is a huge Tarantino fan. He goes, oh, does he talk about his movies? I'm like, no. So I want to know right now, this is a book about him growing up and the movies that he loved in the 70s. And what's great about it is it really is a love letter, not just to his mom who took him to these movies, which he clearly was way too young and a lot of ways while reading this you'll appreciate this I'm like this would be like if Stu Goss wrote a book if Stu was raised by like a single mom in Long Island and like his mom took him to go see Commando and Predator that's what this book is like like his mom was taking him to like these super violent movies I think he's like 10 and 12 years old but his memory for it is amazing and apparently his mom was quite attractive dating a bunch of different black guys at this time so and his- he loved it I heard him talk about this with Howard
1: Stern he's like yeah. I thought it was cool my mom like people liked my mom yeah
0: He's like, well, I'm always with different boyfriends, like a lot of good-looking black guys, a lot of athletes, and they would take me to movies, and I just realized, like, hey, if you're going to go to the movies, you got to shut up, but I loved it. It was, like, these super violent movies, some black exploitation films, but, like, he, he ends up being a guy who really... I love the, the term he coins, which is revenge movies. Like, it's just... And that is just... Guy's pissed off looking to kill a bunch of people. Charles Bronson, Death Wish, you know. And he would call them Revenge of Maddox. He goes, oh, I love these Revenge of Max." He would just go. His parents would take him, And he ends up doing these really smart, insightful essays about these films. But what's important is that it's, it's not just, he's not just playing a film critic in the book saying, here's what the movie's great. He's saying, here's why I, Quentin Tarantino, love that book. Because, you know, I saw this movie at this time in my life and this guy had this influence on me. And my wife said this and blah, blah, blah. So it, I love the fact he's mixing The personal along with the profound in the movie. And in fact, I think he was on Kimmel. And Kimmel said to him, like, you know, why don't you write an autobiography? And he goes, well, it's funny. Pauline Kael, the legendary film critic, once said, why would I write an autobiography? It's all there. Like, it's all my reviews. So for Tarantino, it was like, my life is in my movies and in this book. Like, you can tell everything about my life through all these movies that I love. Like, he goes, he writes an entire chapter about Bullet which is you know, very famous for the great car chase scene. He talks about Steve McQueen was like the coolest guy and why he has such an influence on him. As for his actual movies, if you love his movies, you go, What did Does he say anything in his movies? He says a chapter on Dirty Harry, Escape from Alcatraz, talks about um, Eastwood quite a bit, talks about Charles Bronson, Deliverance. I mean, he's got some great stuff on Deliverance as well. If you love that movie, I mean, he talks about how disturbing it was. He loves Sam Peckinpah, The Wild Bunch, which is an incredible film. But what I most want to talk to you about was Taxi Driver, which he has always said is one of his favorite movies of all time. And he's right, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. But this guy's got some balls on him. Tarantino, in the midst of the chapter, praising Taxi Driver. He's saying it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I love it, I love it. He starts taking some shots at Marty. I'll read. Page 228. Scorsese told David Thompson, I was shocked by the way audiences took the violence in Taxi Driver. Previously, I'd been surprised by audience reaction to The Wild Bunch, which I saw in a Warner Brothers screening with a friend and loved. But a week later, I took some friends to see it in a theater, and it was as if the violence became an extension of the audience and vice versa. This is now Tarantino. Shocked? Really? You were shocked? Let's get this straight. A Roger Corman alumnus, Martin Boxcar Bertha Scorsese, who came within an inch of directing I Escaped from Devil's Island, directs one of the most kinetically charged violent climaxes in cinema history, and he was shocked that audiences were sort of turned on by it? No, he wasn't. That's just the kind of horse shit that a director would tell a David Thompson or a Stephen Farber <laughs> or a Charles Chaplin or a Rex Reed or a Rona Berth. They'll let him get away with it. Scorsese being shocked by the audience's reaction to the climax of Taxi Driver is the kind of horseshit the film directors insincerely mumble when they've crafted a tremendously violent and controversial sequence and then find themselves on the hot seat with some interviewer having to answer for it. They never say Eh? cinematic violence is fun. They never say, I just want to end the way with a bang. They never say, I want to shock the audience. No, like Peckinpah before him, Scorsese had to bend over backward to disingenuously describe those magnificent, <laughs> exhilarating violent scenes he crafted as horrifying. He's like, That's more saying?
1: of a shot at the media than at Scorsese. It's
0: probably true, too. <laughs> he was like, you know, Scorsese says, I saw a talk show once in a theater on opening night. Everybody was yelling and screaming at the shootout. When I made it, I didn't intend to have the audience react with that feeling. Yes, let's go out and kill. Now, this is Tarantino. Or maybe they were yelling and screaming because the audience had been led to both that ending and the violent exposition the entire film. And not the film's climax, they are chilling as an American audience would. He's like, Scorsese has jerked us off so hard throughout the film. Now that we're heading towards the climax, going where the whole movie has always threatened to go, we can't wait to come. And when Travis blows Murray Mawson's brains into the back of his head <laughs> and they go splat against the wall of Iris' fuck hotel room, we do. Which brings me to my rhetorical question to Maestro Scorsese. When you direct one of the most kinetic and outrageously violent action scenes ever contained in a studio produced motion picture, violent catharsis surely must have been one of the filmmaker's goals, right? Is Travis Bickle disturbing and troubling? No doubt. And this is a movie he loves. (laughs) So I, I think it's amazing that Tarantino's yeah, got Yeah, it's a the, good book. He's got some, he obviously is so passionate about movies. The next chapter is even more interesting. He talks about what if Brian De Palma directed Taxi Driver instead of Martin Scorsese, which is always a fun game to do with friends. You say, okay, what if this happened? What if this happened? I mean, famously, Al Pacino, they wanted for Han Solo. Just imagine Al Pacino <laughs> in Star Wars. Hey, sometimes I amaze myself. He, he turned down... <laughs> Dustin Hoffman and Kramer versus Kramer. Like, there's, there's so many what-ifs in movie history, so there's, it's a great, great chapter. What if Brian De Palma had directed um, Taxi Driver? One more excerpt I had to read to you, because this is something we can all appreciate. When you go to a movie, we've all been there, right? You start laughing at a movie that's not supposed to be funny. Right? That, that, at least that scene is not intended to be yeah. funny. And then you get the giggles. You can't stop laughing. So he tells this great story about this in his chapter towards the end, which I immediately related to, because I mean we've all been there. It's on the chapter called The Fun House, and he's talking about a film called Eaten Alive. Now, this is when his mom was dating a guy named Floyd. He's like, Floyd and I loved Eaten Alive. Not because it was a great movie. We both felt for a cheap horror flick, it wasn't bad. And a few moments were better than that. We liked the actors. We liked the sleaziness. But the thing we loved most is Robert England. Now, Robert England, you hear that name? Like, I know that is. That's the guy who played Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street. But I, of course, have never heard of Eaten Alive. But he mentions, he goes, yeah, this was long before Nightmare on Elm Street. We loved Robert England as the butt-fucking, shit-talking, white-trash buck. When he first meets <laughs> Roberta Collins, he says, My name is Buck, and I'm here to fuck. Floyd is Tarantino's mom's boyfriend. Floyd turned to me and asked incredulously, What did he just say? I repeated, My name's Buck, and I'm here to fuck. At the repeating of that line, Floyd burst out laughing. And when Floyd got the giggles, it was impossible not to laugh with him. So the two of us started laughing. And then right at the beginning of the movie, we got into the single biggest case of the giggles I ever fell into during a movie. And then when Buck tried to fuck Roberta Collins in the ass, we fell out again. We laughed about that buck-fuck line for the first whole 20 minutes of the movie, the most serious part of the movie. Just as soon as one of us would calm down and start trying to reclaim their shit, the other one would laugh again, and that would set both of us off for another four minutes. At the world (laughs) premiere of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, at the Cannes Film Festival, Gael Garcia Bernal told me the same thing happened to him and Diego Luna when Brad Pitt said the line in the Musso and Frank parking lot, don't cry in front of the Mexicans. He said they laughed so hard and so long, Gael's girlfriend started getting mad at them. In a normal theater, other patrons might have been annoyed by Floyd and me, but there was always a general malaise and apathy to sparsely populated grindhouse audiences. Eventually, we got our ship back together and settled <laughs> down and watched the movie. <laughs> to this day, anytime I see Robert Englund, I think of him, and I would always tell Floyd, hey, man, I just saw Buck another movie. And he talks about those movie theaters in L.A. and it would have impacted that on him. All right, I really enjoyed the book. It's called Cinema Speculations. It's by Quentin Tarantino. I really enjoyed this episode. No guess, but like I had to empty the tank. We had a lot of stuff. Oh. Six movies in a book. That's good what happens when you man. take a week off. There's some good stuff though here. Boss Miami. Once again, get your tickets now. Next week, Tar. Cate Blanchett, Oscar Frontrunner, Till, Civil Rights film, Bones and All, Timothee Chalamet, three new films we're talking about. May not do some old movies for a while because I got all these screeners in here. People always think, oh, you get free movies all the time. I said, no, 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 I pay $150 a year to the Critics' Choice Awards to be a part of the Critics' Choice, uh, you know, crew. And from November 23rd to January 15th, they just send me a ton of stuff. So... Thanksgiving, I got 20 movies sent to me, and now we're going to just be plowing through all these movies. It's going to be awesome, including Pinocchio in a couple of weeks. They sent me this big Pinocchio Gibson, Pinocchio Screenplay, Pinocchio Books, Pinocchio Wait, CDs. Anybody can, anybody can pay 150 bucks and no, no, no. become a critic ben, no, no, choice? Ben, no, 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 Ben Lyons had to vouch me. It's like the mob, like friend of okay. a friend. So Ben Lyons okay. went to them and goes, hey, this guy's great. I vouch for him. They're like, what does he do? Oh, he's got this podcast. You do an interview. They're like, okay, you're in. 150 bucks, you pay dues, and then bam. Oh, you had to
1: do an interview. Wow, nice. Was it it like uh, (laughs) Bonafide's? Were they like, all right, name three Martin Scorsese movies, (laughs) name three... Correct.
0: Yeah, it was was like a sports quiz, but like for movies, but those obscure movies. Um, This was fun. And also we have next week another author, we can't go another week without an author. This was when I mean, we talked about a book this week, but next week we have an author, Debbie Applegate. She wrote a book called Madam. Uh, she's the woman that first, the first whorehouse ever in New York City. She started it. So we're going to talk to Debbie Applegate. I don't know if she's going to be able to top Sean Levy. I thought he was fantastic. We're still getting like texts and tweets from people who are like, "I just heard Sean Levy." My buddy Mitch Green <laughs> said, "I really got grossed out on the guy admiring the smudges on the piano." <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't listened to Sean Levy yet, you should. Thanks so much for watching Cinephile. We'll see you next time at the movies.
2: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.